Hey friends, one last Disciple Instant episode in the double digits. This is episode 99. I'm your host, Daniel Schreiner. This week, I'm interviewing Michael Lawrence on the proposed statement of practice and constitution revisions. You can come to an open forum and ask questions on October 3, but I thought this would be a nice little primer as you think about these things and why they matter. They do matter for our life together. So listen, be encouraged and helped. You're welcome. Michael Lawrence, welcome back to the Disciple Hinson podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Did you know that this was the podcast you were coming on today? I know you do a lot of podcast shows. <laughs> Lots of podcasts. True or false, Michael Lawrence loves church bylaws. That's got to be a false. You don't stay up at night like, you know, you're Adrian's what or like reading some fascinating history. Your kids are reading Harry Potter and you've got uh, different church bylaws. I'm, I'm studying various church bylaws. No, no. In fact, that's not the case. I think that might be one of the most surprising revelations of this podcast for <laughs> Actually, many of our listeners. If if, uh, if anybody's been around staff meetings or elders meetings, they they know that I'm always saying, so So, what does our statement of practices say? <laughs> that's that, a good point. I'm sure there's something in there. Does anybody know what it is? Yeah. The other um, surprising thing is that uh, I was the lead on the revisions for the statement of practices and constitution uh, changes after Jeff Chang left. Well, you Who know, that, thunk it? There's, a, there's a long tradition of that because when I was the associate pastor at Capitol Baptist, it was my job to uh, be the lead on revising our constitution bylaws back then. Oh. I was, I was uh, dubbed the James Madison. Okay, uh, I can of the, see of the staff striking resemblance striking. to James Madison. Um, so, one of the uh, just to back up a little bit because we want to have a conversation leading up to the open forum on October third. Right, uh, God willing, with e- Eli Wilsey's good help and PK's good work, this will release before, before October third. I'm sure it will still be useful, even if it's released after. But we want to think about why the elders are proposing the particular changes that we are to the statement of practices, to the constitution that we're going to vote on as a congregation, uh, the third, whatever the third Sunday of November is. Uh, but let's back up before we kind of have the, the conversation about the changes themselves. Uh, maybe some people are wondering, you know, a, a lot of people in our church are like, wait, we have a constitution <laughs> and we have a statement of practices. Why is it helpful for a church just in general, not even just Henson to have these documents that are so boring? Great question. First, because uh, I believe it's required by law. We are a 501c3. And so as part of our articles of incorporation, we have to have a constitution and bylaws. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's just something that the state of Oregon requires. Beyond that, uh, it's helpful because as a church, it's helpful to have some settled kind of rules of the road, ways in which we're going to do things so that when it's time to call a new pastor, we're not having to like reinvent the wheel, mm-hmm. we actually have a process in place. Or when we are thinking about taking in members or or seeing members out, like we, we've defined our, our processes, our rules, our order of how we're going to live together. Uh, the Bible gives us a lot of instructions, mm-hmm. but it doesn't get down to the, obviously, the, the level of detailed practice. And it's helpful just for unity. It's helpful for... Um, efficiency when we have members meetings uh, it's it's helpful t- to get all of us onto the same page 
to have an agreed upon set of rules. It, it's helpful to guard against the abuse of authority. It establishes where the authority is for certain kinds of decisions in the church. Um, I don't think we would be that anybody would be willing to insure us as a church if we didn't have these documents. Oh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I do think I think your point there is is well taken. That it really does protect against the abuse of authority. The elders can't do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. The congregation can't do whatever it wants on a whim, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We've we've agreed together, here's how we're going to do things. And we've tried to, uh, and the people who wrote our original constitution and statement of practices, although I assume that from, we, we've had some sort of constitution and statement of practices for many decades, going back, I mean, probably to the earliest early 20th century. I think I think as far back as we have records, uh-huh. uh, which isn't to the beginning. Right. Uh, we think some records have been lost. Maybe because of a fire. Because of a fire. Uh, but as far back as we have records, we've got things like this in place. Okay. But you, so we're not, we're in the area of wisdom and organizing ourselves together as a church. And certainly we're looking to biblical principles, but we're not saying that each article is like a thus saith the Lord. That's correct. I okay. mean, I mean, some are reflecting a thus saith the Lord. Right, like an elder needs to meet these qualifications. qualifications. We're going to lay that out in exactly. our SOP. Exactly. Okay. But, but uh, d- uh, <laughs> like what sort of supermajority should be required to recognize a new elder or a new pastor? What what level of support needs to be in place to adopt a budget? Yeah, the Bible just doesn't say. You're you're smack dab in the middle of wisdom at that point. When you used the term supermajority a minute ago, it just made me think of Robert's rules of order. Did yeah. you know Robert? I did not know Robert, but mm-hmm. I have become acquainted with his rules over the years. Okay, who was Robert? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I think some guy named Robert. I think he was Scottish. Um, I. Uh, but but basically, as long as there have been uh, bodies of people that come together to deliberate and make decisions, mm-hmm. they've needed to have some idea of, well, how should we proceed? How do you manage mm-hmm. conversation? How do you manage votes? The most commonly used uh, practice in, in the English-speaking world is Robert's Rules of Order. Robert got invited to a lot of church meetings, not a lot of parties. <laughs> that's, I assume that's correct. Um, so... Did you write these documents that we have, I did not. Michael? I did not write them. Who did? I have no idea. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> listening wants to tell us who wrote our current statement of practices and constitution, that would be interesting to know. Obviously, uh, at, at some point, an original version of these were put in place. And then over the years, they have been gradually and repeatedly revised. But mainly what we have today is was put in place prior to you arriving 11 years ago for the most part for yeah. the most part we've revised it a few times we went through one revision uh maybe, maybe 2017 through two, well we went through a revision pretty soon after i got here okay it was about time for there to be a revision yeah so shortly after i got here there were some revisions made uh bill franski and i worked on that together okay and then right back in 2016 2017 we went through another round. Okay. From what I remember, although I'm forgetting, maybe I wasn't even here for the first revision since you've been here, um, but both revisions since you've been here thus far have been relatively minor. For the most part. Okay. Yeah, for the most part. Uh, so, some of the biggest changes that happened that first time yeah. around 
were we made it clear that if you are a pastor, you're an elder. Mm. Uh, so in the original statement of practices, when I got here, not the the original, but mm-hmm. the ones that were in place when I got here, uh, only the lead pastor was an elder. And hmm. he could bring one or two associates onto the eldership, but the rest would not have been considered elders. So we made that okay. change. Yeah. Um, we also uh, made some changes. There were some external committees. Like there was a missions committee that made decisions about the missions budget. There was a finance committee. Uh, there was a nominating committee. And in that first set of revisions, all of those committees went away. Uh, the elders were the nominating committee. The elders... We're setting the mission's budget. Um, yeah, those are those are the biggest changes that I recall. I mean, those are somewhat; those are pretty significant changes. Yeah, they are. Okay, okay. Um, well, why do we need to revise them from these documents from time to time? Yeah. So, built into our documents is a requirement that every five years we take a look at them and revise them. And I think the main reason for that is the church is alive; it's growing; it's changing. Mm-hmm. And so, you would expect that over time you're going to get out ahead of your documents Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. the church will have grown in ways that the documents didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. And so periodically you need to sit down and and get your documents to catch up with where the church is and then maybe even try to look out, you know, a year or two as far as you can Mm -hmm. and prepare for the future. But there's a limit to how much you can prepare for the future. So you're always going to need to come back and revise and catch them up. Good call. you know, I in, just in case we have some listeners who are starting to tune out because, you know, your eyes start to glaze over when you read these documents. Um, y- you were talking about, you know, that we're, as a church, a living organism. We get out ahead of our documents, which makes a lot of sense. Do you just have any good stories from not necessarily Henson, but things you've heard over the years about funny things that appear in, you know, churches bylaws? Um or any just any good stories about these documents as a you know maybe a fundamentalist church has in their documents that women aren't allowed to wear <laughs> pants or something like that. I don't know that I've got stories like that. Boy, that would be that would be tough to be in such a church. Um, I mean, I know that for example, in our case, this isn't funny, but the the statement of practices that were in place when I arrived were really good, but they were statement of practices that were put in place when the church was transitioning from uh, sort of a traditional committee and deacon-run church to an elder-led church. And so when you looked at the statement of practices, you realized, oh, yeah, this is this is a document that's in transition. Mm. They haven't had elders for very long. Mm-hmm. And so they've actually taken a lot of responsibilities that we would think of as elder responsibilities, and they still have them with other groups and other committees. Some of that was you know, maybe there were some people that were afraid. Oh, what's what's going to be like having elders? Are, are they going to be power hungry? Are they going to be, mm-hmm. you know, abusing their authority? So let's have some checks and balances out there and let's um, make sure that other people are making decisions other than the elders. And that might have been a fine thing to do right at first, right? Because mm-hmm. the elders needed to earn some trust mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and kind of prove themselves. Yeah. But then by the time we got here, it was it was clear, oh no, the, the elders are doing great work. They're They're really trustworthy we should like let them do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the the uh, statement of practices need to be revised to reflect that. I I hope, I mean, you know, if if you're noticing your statement of practices, it's because something's not going well, yeah, right? Right. You know, if right. the church is happy and healthy and moving along well, you're really not going to 
notice them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there are funny or strange things in the statement of practices, it, it's which I hope we don't have. Uh, it, it's probably a reflection of either distrust, you know, back there mm-hmm. in the past somewhere, mm-hmm. fear, mm-hmm. Um, or maybe just idiosyncrasy. Did you ever think of making it a punishment for one of your children when they misbehave, having them write the statement of practices or the constitution like on a chalkboard or <laughs> memorize these documents? That would be... A cruel and unusual punishment, I think. It would be. Although maybe we would be well served to be more familiar with them from time to time. But that's where the plurality of elders comes in, right? That's right. right. That's right. Um, Okay. Well, I guess I have two follow-up questions that I didn't prepare you for. But uh, true or false, um, statement of practices and constitution, because we talked about the abuse of authority thing, and you just said checks and balances. Statement of practices as a checks and balance on authority in a congregation. True or false? Uh, True. Discuss. Because um, it's not merely that. That that it's that it's checks and balances. It's, no, it's yeah. not merely checks and balances. Yeah. But certainly, a statement of practices uh, and a constitution uh, lays out a, a binding process for the church that's binding on everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, if you've got, let's say, you've got um, like a really charismatic pastor who can just sort of thinks he can get away with stuff. Just mm-hmm. on the basis of his charisma, mm-hmm. uh, no, a, a statement of practices is is going to be a check on that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the congregation could could use it in that way, I suppose. Um, the, the the same with with elders, like, like there's not a class of there's not a group of people, there's not an authority in the church that isn't bound by the rules that we've all collectively agreed to. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, true or false? Uh, a church member in a congregational meeting can make a motion from the floor. True. Have you ever seen that happen? No, not at Henson. Not at Henson. Uh, what would if that if someone were to make a motion um, and say it was really weird? Say somebody just thought it would be funny to say like, not only do we wear masks, but we wear Minnesota Twins hats <laughs> for all the Sundays in right. October. Right. Um, what what would happen? What would happen? Yeah. Uh, the moderator would need to ask, is there a second? Mm -hmm. And if there's no second, it dies right there for Mm -hmm. lack of a second. There's not even any discussion. Uh, We had, uh, we haven't had this here, but back in DC, um, there there was always at the end of every meeting, the question, any other business. Mm -hmm. And we had a member Mm -hmm. who just believed it was deeply, deeply important that there always be some other business Oh, okay. Always. Yeah. <laughs> this is it's not a true congregational meeting until, like, <laughs> until there's, there's some other business. Other business that's brought up. Yeah. And uh, he was a dear older saint, and he would, um, he probably wasn't there by the time you got there, Dan. Okay. Uh, but th- th- there would be motions like, I move that we change the light bulb in the, um, the outside light over the back door. Awesome. More frequently, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And uh, I mean, I, literally, that was one. And uh, the the moderator, uh, who I think was me at the time, would would generally <laughs> say, "Thank you so much for that." Is there a second? Uh, sometimes there would there be would a second, one. but usually yeah. there'd be no second. Yeah. But I would, and so it would die. Yeah. But I would always say, thank you so much. That is a really good suggestion. We will take that under The janitor advisement. will take care <laughs> yes, of that. The janitor will take care <laughs> of it. This doesn't need to be in the minutes. Yeah, that's right. But but if a, if a member made a motion, it would need a second. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
depending on what it was, mm-hmm. if it's something that could easily be dealt with in the committee as a whole, right, right then and there, mm-hmm. we might deal with it. Sure. Like, like maybe, maybe it was a, maybe it was a really useful motion. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, maybe there's the, like the carpets ripped somewhere and people are about to trip and he wants to make sure that, you know, it's taken care of. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, you know, we'll take care of it. Okay. If it's, but if it's a matter of some real significance that, that maybe needs some wisdom to, to guide that discussion, uh, probably the next thing that would happen is the elders would move that it be referred to the elders for further consideration. Sure. And I, I, either I would stand up and make that motion, I would thank the person for it, and, and I would introduce a new motion suggesting, because of the seriousness of the matter, maybe, the significance of the matter, and we don't want to just... Um, offhandedly deal with it right then and there at the end of maybe a long meeting, uh, we would refer the motion to the elders for further consideration, and then they would bring it back at a future meeting. That's good. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, normally all the motions in a congregational meeting are going to be coming from the elders and are going to not need a second. Certainly that's the way it's been at Henson. And why don't they need a second? Uh, Because of the plurality of elders? Because they're coming from more than one person. Yeah. I was afraid I was going to fail that, that yeah, no, Q&A no, you, time. You, 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 passed. You, you passed. But um, what I hear you saying about the motions from the floor and whatnot, and obviously we want a robust congregationalism here at Henson, is we would not discourage um, someone from raising a motion at a congregational meeting. Not all the motions have to come from the elders by our statement of practices and constitution. We wouldn't discourage it. Yeah. But how how should a member think about that maybe before, say, they're planning on bringing a motion at a congregational meeting? Yeah, I, I think uh, you should probably think about it the same way the elders think about it, which is the elders don't bring motions just by themselves Willy either. Willy-nilly. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we talk about it ahead mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. And we agree, yep, this is the appropriate time to bring this motion. It's been thought through, considered, yep. you know, yep. vetted, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you thought there was a matter that needed to be brought before the congregation, you should definitely, uh, I think, feel the freedom to bring it. But but first first bring it to the elders. Yeah, let them talk about it. And if you don't trust the elders, maybe this isn't the right church for you. That that's true. <laughs> Not to get us no, on no, another. that's yeah. a whole other discussion. Right. But I do think that's true. Yeah, the the elders' responsibility here is not to rule, but it is to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you if you're not in position to trust their leadership, then there there's a bigger conversation that needs to happen, mm-hmm. right? And you're not gonna uh, you're not gonna change that through motions at a members meeting, right? Um, but if you do have a real concern, uh, bring it to the elders because honestly. If the elders share end up sharing that concern and bring the motion themselves, that's going to bring a lot more weight to the motion for the congregation as a whole. Yep. Generally, yep. people bring motions because they want the motion to pass. Well, a, a great way to get your motion to pass is to have the elders bring it. Right. You right. Know, because it right. comes with their authority and, that's and right. trust. Yeah. Yeah. And the plurality, as, the you, plurality as we yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're going off on a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but speaking of congregational meetings, good on ya, uh, members who are willing to be brave enough to ask questions that are edifying and lead to understanding. People like Ryan Sauter yes. were, have been examples Great of shout out this. to Ryan. Yeah. Uh, anything else you would add about well, asking questions in congregational meetings? I, I think that that uh, we want to emphasize that congregational meetings are they're not rubber stamps these are mm-hmm. real meetings mm-hmm. and we the elders are trusting that the holy spirit is working through the wisdom of the congregation as a whole 
uh, as we consider various matters and, and make decisions. And it is it will always be the case, probably, that, th- that there are going to be times when the congregation or people in the congregation know things that the elders don't know. Mm-hmm, I'll mm-hmm. never. I'm sure I've told this story before, but I'll never forget. Back in D.C., I was the moderator, and we had brought a resignation uh, to the congregation. And they, uh, as always, you know, we explained, you know, they're resigning because they found this church closer to their home. You know, that was this particular case, and they're mm-hmm. joining this church. Uh, is there any discussion? And somebody in the front row raised their hand and said. Uh, are the elders aware that that church denies the Trinity? I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, uh, and I looked at the other, and we're all shaking our heads. No, the elders were not aware that that church denies the good Trinity. To know. That's really good. To, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we withdrew the motion, mm-hmm. you know, because we're not going to mm-hmm. dismiss somebody into a heretical church. Mm-hmm. And later that came back uh, kind of at the next meeting as a matter of discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, we. The, the elders value edifying questions, um, honest questions. I don't think devil's advocate kind of questions are helpful in that context. Yeah, it's called devil's advocate for a reason. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. But honest questions, helpful, mm-hmm. edifying questions for the whole, always welcome. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you've got information that the elders don't have, that's always welcome as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why we actually ask the congregation to let us know in advance if you're planning to vote no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cuz yep. probably you're going to vote no not only because you disagree but you have reasons for your disagreement. We want to know. We want to so know so we can be informed. Yeah, yep. cuz cuz maybe you know things that that the elders are just unaware of. That's a good call. I trust that was a uh, helpful rabbit trail. And to conclude that, because we actually want to talk about the particular revisions that the elders are proposing to these documents, but if you would want uh, to think about um, what congregationalism, what a Baptist church, how that functions, um, w- would there be any resources that we would necessarily recommend? I'm just thinking for a lot of people on the West Coast, Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. in particular, mm-hmm. the idea of like voting and membership and discipline and yeah. constitution and statement, it feels so formal and strange because of how like the church is, you know, a family, and which is also true. That's you know? also true, right? Um, but you know, in terms of to the, be informed, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just say, but when the family is five hundred people, and half of them may show up for a meeting, right? You you're not going to be able to conduct that conversation the way you would around the dinner table. True. Yeah. Thus, rules and procedures. Right. Right. Any books though, just on congregationalism? Yeah, a couple things. Mm-hmm. I would. Uh, I did a sermon early on in my time here called "What Is Congregationalism?" Mm-hmm. So you could go to the archives and, and look that up. Mm-hmm. Listen to that sermon. I think that's helpful. I basically deliver that sermon with my own flair uh, <laughs> in the membership class uh, oh, that we do, the okay. Welcome to Henson or whatever we call yeah, it. Welcome, welcome to Henson. Welcome to Henson. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear about some of these things, you can come to the Welcome to Henson class, which is launching this next Sunday. Yeah. That's October third. Yeah. October third. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, there's, a little, there's a there's a little booklet on congregationalism in the Church Basics series. We mm-hmm. have it on the bookstall and in mm-hmm. the library. Um I love the the little book that uh, Mark Dever did a long time ago, which I think maybe they're republishing under a new name called uh, Display of God's Glory. And it has a section on congregationalism that I think mm. is really, really simple, helpful um, uh, stuff. Uh, obviously, you could look at uh, some other things that Nye Marx has published on this. Uh, there's a section on congregationalism in Deliberate Church, which has just been reissued. Uh, under a new title mm-hmm. that I'm blanking on at the we'll moment. We'll put it in the notes. Yeah, okay, so we'll get that on the notes. 
for this is aimed a little bit more at church leaders. Uh, but if you do want to do a little deeper dive, don't fire church members. Very good. Is that I can't yes, remember, is that Lehman? That's Jonathan Lehman. Yep. Don't fire your church members. Uh, that that's a much uh, more kind of deep dive into a biblical basis for congregationalism. Good. All right, we have five minutes to talk about all the revisions. Now, okay. we're going to do kind of lightning round with, and you know that we're going to have a chance to discuss this more at the open forum, because right. we're That's not going right. to do all this background stuff at the open forum, but uh, hopefully that'll be helpful. Let's just turn to the Constitution. We'll just talk about one change there um, that we, we name in our Constitution three church associ associations that we partner with. Um, who, what are those three associations that yeah. we partner with? So the Venture Church Network, which is the new name for our historic denomination, the Conservative Baptists. Um, that, that was a group of churches that, that we were actually there at the beginning, helping to found. Yep. And we continue to be in partnership with them. So that's the Venture Church Network. Uh, also the Southern Baptist Convention. So we are quietly also a Southern Baptist church. And that partnership helps us in a couple of ways. Uh, one, it helps a number of our guys that are going to seminary. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them go to Southern Baptist seminaries, so they get a much cheaper um, tuition mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we're in partnership with them. Mm -hmm. It also opens up doors for us with church planning and missions, and they also happen to manage our retirement accounts. Um, so that that set of associations may be less visible to the average church member that I think has been really helpful for us. Well, and even some people who we dearly love have found our church. I'm thinking of oh, yeah. Jerry and AJ Milligan. They That's found right. our church because of our association That's with SBC. Right. Um, the, uh, the Ruiz. Yeah, Mark also. and Lauren. Yeah. Yep. And and we would be, even though you might have, if you're listening to this, might have cultural associations with SBC churches, doctrinally, Baptist faith and message in terms of ecclesiology, yeah. we're going to be right there. Right right in line with it. Right. That's, that's correct. So that's number two. What's What about the third and then, one? And then the third one is, an, is the newest one, the Northwest Church Network, which is a smaller regional network of churches that we've just helped launch really to uh, aid in local church planning. Great. So... We could say a lot more about the the why and the what of church associations. That might be a, a good subject for another podcast. Um, so that we're just updating those associations uh, in our constitution. We'll turn to the statement of practices. The first thing that might stand out to people is that we're doing away with junior membership. What is junior membership? I want a chapter and verse in the Bible and why we're getting rid of it. So uh, this was something that was in place when I got here uh, and we didn't get rid of it. Uh, at that time, junior membership is a special class of membership for those who are under the age of, I think, 16 as it was originally written. And it, it's current. Uh, and currently, yeah. currently 16. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they come in as full members, but they are not allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. as junior members. Mm -hmm. And of course, the reasons for that, uh, there are rules and laws surrounding membership in a corporation, because we're not just a church, we are also in the eyes of the state, a nonprofit corporation. Mm -hmm. And the members of the corporation are the members of the church. But there, there, there are rules and legal niceties about what age do you have to be to be able to vote uh, in a corporation. So it's possible that that's one of the reasons they had it in place. I'm not sure I wasn't around when they put it in place. Right. That was one of the reasons we kept it. And why are we getting rid of it now? Well, we're getting rid of it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there is no such thing as junior membership in the Bible. You're yeah. either a member or you're not a member. Right. Um, and so that just seemed confu really confusing language. Right. Uh, and instead, we're going to deal with the issue of voting by just a separate clause in our statement of practice saying, yeah, you're a member, but until you're 18, you can't vote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're not going to create two classes of membership. We're mm -hmm. just going to say, 
you can't vote until you're 18. And we would still in, encourage any member who is under the age of 18 to be deeply involved. They can ask questions. Absolutely. They can talk to the, they can meet with the elders. It's just, uh, they just have to wait till they're it, 18 to vote. It, they have all the privileges of membership. Yep. Except that one thing. Okay. That's right. Okay. Uh, if you have more questions about junior membership in particular and why we're getting rid of it, if that concerns you, you know, reach out particularly to me as someone who's talked to youth about these kinds of things for a while. Um, what is a removal? This is a way that we can, um, that someone can be dismissed from the church. What is a removal in our current statement of practices? So in our current statement of practices, a removal is simply an administrative act on the part of the church to strike somebody off of our membership rolls. Used to be called an erasure. Used to be called erasure. We thought, oh, that's really unfortunate language. <laughs> I think it particularly bothered Ron Mars. I, I, I remember I that. Did. He's it like, that bother. just sounds so cruel. Well, we've all seen a number of movies in which people are erased. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not what we're talking about. People make so, you disappear. Yeah, so it was just an administrative act. Okay. Uh, taking somebody off the rolls who had not uh, attended or been in contact with the church for at least a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are uh, proposing to get rid of that because we understand that membership is uh, really an act of covenant between the church and the individual, mm-hmm. the individual and the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we bring people into membership, uh, and in, in doing so, we're covenanting with them. In doing so, we are saying to the world, hey, world, we think, if you want to know what a Christian is, if you, think, if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, we think you can look at this person's life. And, and they are... So we're positively affirming mm-hmm. based on their profession of faith and, and the example of their life that, hey, this this is what a genuine follower of Jesus looks like. That's what membership is. It's not actually an administrative thing of names on a roll. That's right. It's this 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 covenantal act uh, that, that we engage in with one another and then display publicly uh, to the watching world. So in part, we're getting rid of it, uh, this removal clause, which is an administrative way to leave the church because you basically ghost us or fall off the yeah, radar. Yeah. Um, because it's really hard to make that positive affirmation of like, this is what a Christian looks like if someone hasn't been around and gathering with us. And we understand the church just to be the gathering of, you know, or not just, but it is, That's the right. church is the gathering. That's right. When we, when, uh, when we, dismiss somebody from our membership currently, mm-hmm. either through removal mm-hmm. or by accepting the resignation, we are dismissing them as a member in good standing. Mm-hmm. So we're saying, yeah, they're they're leaving. They're not part mm-hmm. of us anymore, but but they're leaving as somebody that we're still positively saying, hey, we, we think this is a believer. Mm-hmm. We have positive evidence for believing so. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the case of a resignation, we're commending them to another church, mm-hmm. right? Um, we don't actually allow people to resign into the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and claim to be a Christian. Now, if somebody comes to us and says, I, I don't believe any of this anymore. I, I never was a Christian. I'm not a Christian. I don't want to claim to be a Christian. Um, then, yeah, we're going to let them into the world. Uh, so a removal, this administrative act of saying, okay, we think this person is a Christian, but we're just sort of releasing them into the world is a is a real contradiction. And it's also saying more than we really can say. If somebody hasn't been around for a year, more, um, we don't know that they're in sin, but we don't have any positive knowledge that that they're walking with Jesus. Mm-hmm. We're, we're actually left in this position of agnosticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't know. And so we understand that membership is not a statement of agnosticism, mm-hmm. right? A- a membership in good standing is a statement of positive affirmation. 
Mm-hmm. We know your life, mm-hmm. and we want to affirm that you're a believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're proposing getting rid of removal as a means of leaving. And what could be an implication of getting rid of that clause? So one possible implication is that if somebody stops coming uh, and they just ghost us for the next year, you, you know, yeah. um, well, let's just say it's 12 months. Okay. Um, then we're going to try to chase them down. Yeah. And we're going to try to get a resignation. In love. In love. Like trying yeah, to figure out what's going, what's going on. What's going on with you? Are you yeah. doing okay spiritually? Yeah. And, and, and what we hope we're going to find is, oh, yeah, they went and joined another church and just didn't tell us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to try to get a resignation that's in good order. Mm-hmm. But if we cannot get a resignation that's in good order, mm-hmm. they've, they've joined another church, they've moved away, they're, you know, they're engaged somewhere else. Uh, then really what I think we are probably going to need to do, at least we need to potentially be able mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. is to actually remove them from our role as an act of discipline. So it's not an administrative act. It's actually a statement saying we can no longer positively affirm your walk with the Lord. Not because we know that there's sin, but because you've been so disengaged and absent from our lives, we're left in a position of agnosticism. Mm-hmm. We just can't, we can't say. Um, we're, we're not saying you're an unrepentant sin other than you're not gathering with us who you covenanted to gather with. So Which is, you know, that's actually, a sin. That's a sin. <laughs> According to Hebrews 10. Yeah, yeah but... no, no, that's, that's significant. Um, but we certainly can't say with any confidence Oh, we are observing your life, and we're watching you walk with the Lord. No, we can't say that because we haven't seen you in a year. It just—it's going to feel. Uh, I think it—it it feels harsh to say um, that we're going to discipline potentially that we would be free to. And when we say we, I'm talking about as a church. As Remember, a church. the elders don't yep. discipline, can't discipline anyone. Um, but to to, dis, to discipline. To remove someone as an act of discipline or excommunicate is another term that we could use, mm-hmm. although not in the Roman Catholic sense. Right. Um, We're not sending anybody to hell. Right. For non-attendance. That seems harsh. How would If someone were to say, this seems really harsh, how would you answer that? Well, I think I would say a couple of things. One, um, Baptists in particular, but I think Christians in general, have always understood that non-attendance is often the, the gateway uh, to other and even more serious sin. Mm -hmm. The first thing that we do when we get caught up in sin is we want to distance ourselves, distance ourselves from the Lord because we feel guilty, distance ourselves from other Christians because we feel guilty in our conscience. So even though we don't know for certain that non-attendance means that there's other unrepentant sin going on, it often does. They're often connected. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, uh, I think it's probably... The most loving thing that we can do to say to a believer who at one point in time covenanted with us to attend, to be a part, to build their life into ours, but now they're not, uh, it's, it's a loving thing to say to them, hey, we can no longer publicly affirm that you're following Jesus. Because it's, it's not like uh, following Jesus is something that you check off on a list, like I did that. Well, I think this comes back to, you know, if, if this feels really strange to potentially be, uh, have the freedom as a church to, to discipline those who refuse to gather with us or another local church, um, 
maybe they should read your book on conversion because to be converted is not to have like, well, I was baptized at Henson 20 years ago. This has always been my home church. How dare you remove me or discipline me as a church because I was married there. Yeah. You know? Right. But it comes back to what does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be converted? Uh, it, it means to be brought into a living, active relationship with the Lord and with the Lord's people. And that and with the Lord's people part always finds its, its expression in a local church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that somebody who's decided, I'm going to be a, a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm going to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be engaged with other Christians, I'm, or I'm going to pick and choose who those Christians are, and I'm not going to be really accountable. Um, I think they are in danger of really deceiving themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in love, we want, we want to warn them of that kind of self-deception and invite them to, to come back, to, you know, to renew their covenant with mm-hmm. us or with some other church, but to not be out there wandering on their own, under their own recognizance, trying to manage their Christian life as best they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just a dangerous place to be. Yeah. And, and in love, we want to be able to say that to them. Great. And just for a point, of, if, if you're still feeling concerns about weight, if we're going to start disciplining people for non-attendance, um, maybe there's a lot of people uh, you know, that could potentially be subject to discipline even at our church currently. Um, uh, one thing to keep in mind is we would, we would not bring someone for discipline um, like 95% of the time, certainly for, for anything related to non-attendance, and then we would act on it in that meeting. We were going to move yeah. really slow. This is not like a complete change of direction about how we think about and uh, practice church discipline here at Henson. No, that's exactly right. I mean, we already have in place a process, we, even with removals, mm-hmm. of we contact people, right. we actually spend months trying to track people down, mm-hmm. we ask them, like, fill us in, what's going on, come back, et cetera, et cetera. And it's even with removals, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. It would be the same with with the new process. Good. Uh, two um, questions. There's a lot you could say for both of those, but we could even save it a little bit for the open forum. What should a church member do if they notice that someone hasn't gathered with us in a while? Like they're praying through their church directory and they're like, oh, you know, this person, haven't seen them in a long time. What should that church member do? Give them a call. Yeah. Reach out to send, them. Send, reach out to them. Send yeah. them a text. Send them an email. Yeah. And just say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Right. Uh, and I was praying for you this morning. Right. Tell me what's 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 going on. And if they don't hear back from that church member? Uh, if they don't hear back from that church member, uh, after maybe even some repeated tries, uh, talk to one of the leaders in sure. the church. Sure. Good. And get them involved. Finally, what would be a good way to pray for our membership or our church as a whole as we seek to live out this church covenant that we have... We, we renew often together, particularly I'm thinking about the part of gathering regularly and having meaningful membership. What's a good way to pray? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we want to pray that we would increasingly value uh, both the public gathering, but then also the, the ongoing life and community that that gathering itself represents that we would that we would value that more than all, all the various other things that are competing for our love our attention uh, our, our commitment the, the the world isn't really bothered by church mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. the church begins to say 
actually, the, the people of God should be your first priority. Mm-hmm. Then the world's bothered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we feel that temptation. Uh, we, we feel the pull. We feel the pressure. Uh, we want to be praying for each other that we would uh, both see and savor Jesus, but that mm. we would recognize that we see and savor Jesus the best in the community of God's people. Amen. Well, that's a great place to conclude. Michael, thanks for coming and having this conversation. I'll see you at the open forum on October 3rd. See you there. <laughs>